if you do change things, if you can, and you don't just change it alone, you change it in teams, yeah, well, that's kind of impressive. They're learning a lot of anthropocentric skills, how to use nature for own consumption. What do we give back? Well, nothing, nothing at all. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Helen Kopnina. Helen is a researcher of sustainability and biodiversity at the Hague University. She and our previous guest, Hayden Washington, co-wrote a journal article on the importance of ecocentrism in order to have real sustainability. Both of them, however, believe that sustainability is just one step, the first step towards regeneration. And Hayden, if you recall from last podcast, talked about eco-reciprocity, about giving back to nature at least as much as we take from nature. And Helen is very much in this vein, and I think you'll find in this podcast, she will really investigate and talk about some of the more anthropocentric uh, matters in education and uh, the way we relate to one another, but specifically in terms of the small steps we can take, the big steps we can take, uh, how we can work together and independently. I uh, wanted uh, this to be part of a series of podcasts with guests who come from outside of the K-12 education space traditionally because it's a question of opening up the ecosystem of schools towards the community, towards researchers, activists, environmentalists, thinkers, uh, anything that can contribute to the conversation. Sometimes we are in this echo chamber where we uh, talk to K-12, about K-12, and, and, and find people who just agree with us. And, and I'm not saying that so that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just trying to open up to, to different conversations, different points of view. And the more I think about it, the more I think that in order to break free of anthropocentrism and adopt a post-humanist uh, way of thinking, we might need to go post-school. We might need to stop thinking about school in the way that it's currently constructed, which is uh, a legacy and, 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 well, actually really a product of the humanist tradition and, and go beyond it and, and have it be a community-based endeavor and enterprise, uh, something where everyone contributes, everyone f- goes in and out fluidly. Uh, students, the learners, whatever we call them, are able to work together and independently uh, in order to pursue what they need uh, for themselves, for their interests, for their self, for their, for their, uh, their well-being but also for the good of the whole, the good of the biocollective, the purpose uh, that uh, drives them, the team, uh, the community, which is in itself a very fluid term. Uh, it, it goes across time and space. Um, and, and I'm just incredibly um, excited about the, the guests that we have because they do connect uh, education with the environment uh, in a way that, it, that is um, really inextricable. Uh, and more than just the environment, our human relations, our relationship with other living uh, species, uh, living beings uh, that are sentient, a planet form, uh, and, and taking this conversation, again, towards a post-humanist uh, uh, way of thinking. So uh, and enough of me. I will leave it to my conversation with um, Helen. Well, hi, Helen. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You are a co-author of a pretty interesting journal article, I must say, about uh, ecocentrism and about its importance with sustainability. Uh, really wanted to get your thoughts on education, uh, ecocentrism. But uh, first, I'll start with the question that I ask all our contributors, which is, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Well, I'm a, a kind of a mix of everything. 
I come from a background in anthropology. So I started off being interested in uh, cultural differences and the way that um, uh, individuals from different cultures relate to natural environment. I would say that I've gone through a number of transitions in my professional life and there was something in my personal life that always kept me preoccupied and that was the idea of nature and you can call it environment or you can call it animals and by animals I don't mean necessarily certain kinds of animals uh, such as mammals but could be anything else and somehow I realized uh, a few years ago uh, 15 years ago that I can combine it with the job that I already love doing that is doing research and teaching it happened in Jadavpur University in Calcutta I went for an academic exchange with Erasmus Mundus program at the time I was working for University of Amsterdam. And uh, I was asked to teach a course in environmental politics for uh, master's political science students. And it was a great experience, culturally speaking, because there I had my anthropological experience of actually being in the middle of an Indian class, being the only Westerner around. And also being confronted by a number of ideas from the class, so not just teaching to them, but learning from them. And one of the interesting things that emerged was that while teaching this uh, environmental politics, a few other things came to the fore. And a few presumptions that I had, perhaps, about the way that um, people indeed from different cultures relate to the world, because I had this idea before I went to India, perhaps a romantic idea. Um, and that again has to do with very long stories from my childhood, reading all kinds of things like Ramayana and Krishnaita. Um, that the Indians have this way of, in a very generalized way, of course, relating to nature that is holistic, that uh, stems from traditions of Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, there's a whole measure of um, uh, interconnectedness, uh, respect, etc. And that basically there is a certain, I would say, reciprocal relationship, even in terms of, you know, the, the whole idea of nirvana, uh, perhaps being the best state, but what happens if you don't uh, go through that state, then there's a rebirth. So every human can be animal. Then there's this idea that a lot of Indians are uh, vegan or vegetarian, etc. Well, I was confronted by students that were very much, uh, in a way, I found westernized, in a way of thinking, such as Economic growth is a measure of progress. GDP is a matter of progress. Uh, things like climate change, for example, apparently are caused by other countries, especially Western countries. Uh, India has no contribution to it. And for the rest, uh, if it does, it only suffers, but it's no contributor. Um, most of my colleagues were not vegetarian. The idea of uh, living in harmony with nature, the circle of life, etc. No, things are very uh, different and very modern or Western, if we can call it this way. And in a sense, um, you know, that was my first direct confrontation, perhaps from the point of view of a lecturer too. 
with the idea that the world um, might not be, of course, I've done my field work before, but my field work for my PhD dissertation, at the time I was studying at Cambridge and my focus was on um, migrant communities, Russian migrants in London and Amsterdam, so it was completely different. I did want to go to India, by the way, at the time, but the supervisor, Ernest Gellner, died a few months before I started you know, my PhD, so I didn't go to India, but indeed, for the first time, I was confronted by something from inside out that made me think, what is my role as a teacher teaching these, uh, well, they're not children, they're master's students, so ages 23 and above. Um, can I teach them certain values that maybe could be interpreted as modern Western, but then modern Western alternative? The land ethic of Leopold, um, Deep Ecology by Arna Nias. Would that change their view of the world, which apparently their view of the world wasn't even that different, at least on the basis of a very small sample that I had from my own students, Western students. It's almost, I noticed there's a global brainwash. In a sense, economic growth is good. Progress is related to, well, basically industrial development. It could be capitalist development. From my own background, I come from a Soviet Union. I can also say that it's not just capitalism, it's industrial socialism. China is no better than any other country in terms of environmental pollution. In many ways, it's worse. So I became more um, skeptical, I think, but I also became more hopeful that perhaps through the means of education, and that's what I'm continuing to do now at my own level in my own school, uh, we can reach out to certain students. We can elicit certain responses and that also has to do with how you teach so certain didactics took me many years to realize that certain things work better than others not just teaching from the book but engaging in uh, discussions or doing role play or doing things like uh, debates in class for example providing certain literature, providing certain films. And I teach at the business school now, so this is quite an interesting challenge. I'm like a Trojan horse already for 14 years coming in and telling business students, not just that they should be good and they should be sustainable and ethical, but finding interesting, creative uh, ways of engaging them in such a way that actually we recruit from a larger pool of let's say business students into a minor, which is an elective course, which has grown from having seven students in the first round to having a waiting list right now. So we must be doing something right. And uh, yeah, I guess that's my background as far as educational and um, yeah, well, I didn't talk about research, but especially educational insights are concerned. Well, Helen, you bring up the concept of global brainwash, which is uh, very interesting and certainly fits into the narrative of globalization, globalization that has tended, uh, at least recently, to have a very humanist view and uh, bringing in all our values together, no matter where we are in the world, uh, bringing them towards uh, these uh, this idea of whatever feels good, just do it, whatever uh, the heart wants, the heart shall follow, and, and, and this kind of narrative. 
I'm not saying that globalization is a modern concept. It's been around since, you know, the beginning of time, but, but the, the specific uh, bringing about together of values um, uh, across the world is, is, is a different concept. But I'm going to ask you the question I ask all our contributors, uh, but I really wanted to get a focus from you about what that means in terms of the environment, in terms of your work. How do you define learning? And also, and very specifically, how do we take learning and action and bring them together? What brings us into this point of activism? How, how does action fall into the area of learning? And by action, you mean actual behavior change in students? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because action and learning, action thinking, uh, one can't go without the other, or rather it can. But if you're only thinking and not taking action, then uh, really there's no impact. Uh, I can know that recycling is very important. I can tell myself that every day, but until I recycle, um, and that's the simplest thing I can think of, uh, really it makes no difference. It's the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy. So how do we think about learning and action that come together? What is your role? Uh, how do we cultivate this spirit among our students, among our colleagues, among the people we interact with? What, what, what is your point of view on this? Well, I can think of two things. One is, uh, for me personally, what type of action I can take. And another one is my students, because this is what I get paid for and this is what I love doing. So personally, I've reached the conclusion that um, also it's one of the articles that my students read by Cindy Eisenhower about Swedish consumers. Personal action doesn't amount to too much. It is kind of important to walk your talk. So if you talk about animal welfare, it's kind of strange to eat animals, for example, and be a carnivore. Uh, yes, if you talk about uh, disappearing rainforests, dumping your paper in a mixed recycling bin or not even recycling, it's also not great. But unfortunately, unfortunately, we all live in bubbles. So my friends might be vegans. They might feel very guilty about flying on the airplane. They might not have children because they think that, well, this population growth contributes to huge challenges, etc. And we might be all uh, sharing our ideas on social media. You know, we might not have friends outside of our bubble. The same problem plays out globally, of course. Okay, you have these uh, circles of friends, etc. On a global scale, if you look at the numbers in terms of consumption or consumption of meat, for example, we're heading towards 8 billion people. So whether there are these uh, little... In India, for example, I'm sure there are still a lot of people that are vegan and uh, live in harmony with nature, and there are indigenous communities that still do. But if you look at the statistics on a global scale, it's not individuals that can make the most di uh, difference precisely because next to them, there are people that do fly airplanes, have loads of children, eat meat, etc. In the supermarket, you always have a choice. You can buy your organic and uh, fair trade coffee. Next to it, you have big, you know, cheap coffee. And for whatever reasons, people can say, well, look, we're not rich enough to buy that fancy, expensive product. Well, they just don't care. You know, and that they just don't care. That happens all over the place if you step out of your bubble and notice that not everybody is like that. If you travel around the world, indeed, and you see countries in, on different continents, you also notice that your idea of 
being good and what it means to be good and how to signal your virtue. Yeah, well, that's just not even understood. As I gave an example of Jadavpur University, like economic growth is bad. What are you talking about? Are you crazy? You know, but okay, the same idea I can say to, if I start with that, with my business students or my colleagues, and they are like, economic growth is bad. Why is it bad? So I believe that an individual, myself, in terms of action, the action that is important, and that was Paul Stern. Paul Stern is a um, social behavioral psychologist. He said there's a difference between private sphere of action and public sphere of action, and direct and indirect. So the public sphere of action is very important. You can join, for example, political parties. Uh, you can petition for things. So better to step out of your own bubble and try to connect to larger things, or NGO work, etc. Sometimes indirect effects, or what is very important is that you try to influence governments and corporate elites. Because you might be recycling your little piece of paper, but if the system is not integrated in the system in which the government and the producers keep producing massive amounts of paper without looking for substitutes, that's not going to help. Or if supermarkets do not simply put prohibit consumer uh, choice editing, it's called unsustainable choices, simply do not allow them. I mean, there are many things like this. The governments do not allow hard drugs to be sold on the shelves of supermarkets, but they do allow all kind of, you know, bad products, which are labor intensive, but also um, extremely harmful environmentally. They don't put a tax on it, etc. So your individual sphere of influence becomes bigger when you target bigger players. I do believe that change also very much, not exclusively, has to come top down so not just us individuals can change the world that doesn't happen or well it's nice partially but it doesn't work has to press higher than this really uh and that's the kind of message too that um oh yeah and another distinction is direct and indirect effects that's also very important to realize so i might be recycling my piece of paper which is direct Indirectly, my pension fund and perhaps your pension fund is investing in uh, timber, paper, and whatever industry, investing in fossil fuels. So people don't realize it. It's one of the questions I ask students at the beginning of the course. What do pensions have to do with sustainability? Normally, there's a complete blank. Although I must say, because my students are business students, sometimes I hear a little word investment, and that's interesting because yes, yes, that's what it is. Indeed, the effects that you think your individual behavior has a direct effect, yeah, well, again, on a very small scale, but sometimes indirectly, uh, these things are very important to be aware of, I think, as far as action is concerned, which actions are strategically important to actually make a difference. So personally, what I do is I teach and I write. When I teach, I notice that I'm behind the scenes, but I'm pushing those young people, 20 and to 25 years old, to think. And in that way, behind the scenes, there are people I see my evaluations and I'm 
proud to say that they are pretty good at the end of the course. I've learned over the years. Yeah, they learn a lot, apparently. What they do afterwards, we keep in touch with some of them via LinkedIn. Uh, I teach at the same institution for almost 15 years. So we have alumni. I know what they're doing. I know what a lot of them are doing. Sometimes they come back as guest speakers for our courses. So that's kind of remarkable too, because there you see individuals that have um, gone pretty far with those lessons. And another thing is I write, and that's the reason why you invited me in the first place, I guess. These days I am quite overwhelmed by a number of emails or phone calls. Normally I'd also go to conferences by invitations uh, when COVID is not there. Um, yeah. It looks like what I write in my little corner on my little screen does have a resonance. So I do hope it has some kind of influence as well. Now what my students do, that's the second part, how they take action. I do think that they are well positioned to take action because they study business. So again, as a Trojan horse coming into a business school, what you want is not just to talk to nice, nice, girls in glasses that feel very, very sad about starving children in Guatemala and about orangutans and about their rainforest, but the hard type that come in and say, we're here because we want to earn money. So you have to find didactic strategies to address that and say, okay, what are you going to do with your money? you know, lead them to speak about it like, okay, money is power. What are you going to do with your power? What does power mean? <laughs> A power to, for example, transform the world, influence the future, like Elon Musk, you know, that appeals to them. That's sexy. So if you start talking to certain business student individuals, like, hey, you should be, you know, ashamed of yourself, like, kind of businesses that, that doesn't oh it works for the same nice people who are already completely converted and feel bad try to get as many of them with you as you can different groups of students and especially the ones that are tough nuts to crack once they're in it's amazing what happens because once they realize that indeed with their money and power or at least the idea they want to be significant. They want to do something in the world. And that in itself is a powerful tool for them later on to, to push for things. So it could be working for a large company. One student told me he's going to work for Shell and he's going to change things from within. To which I said, well, good luck, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to become part of a system and, you know, might get disappointed. Well, he is working for Shell and he is working for a department of, um, well, that specializes in renewable energy, particularly wind energy right now. He says, look, I'm doing accountancy. I'm not doing anything direct, but actually I see our department is growing. And, you know, if their department is growing and it's just 0.001% of whatever Shell is doing, that's trillions of dollars, nonetheless, just the scale of it is massive, you know? And I have other students working for banks, financial institutions, pushing for things like green investment, understanding green investment in what? And the powerful thing about it, again, is that it's much bigger than just one individual, going back to the beginning of the story. 
So the action becomes connected to something bigger and something initially might be seen as evil, you know, a company like Shell, Big Bank, etc. If you do change things, if you can, and you don't just change it alone, you change it in teams. Yeah, well, that's kind of impressive. You know, you also have divestment. Banks also divest under pressures. And yeah, that kind of action I find uh, very inspiring. And your background is university students and mine is more of k-12 recently uh, but i think that it doesn't matter what age uh, where we are from uh, one to a hundred there is this idea of purpose and action coming together and uh, having um, the idea that it comes from within and that the action that we do is authentic when it comes from within and i guess my question is to you is how do we work this weird tension this dynamic between curriculum coming down uh, from the top, uh, specifically, even if it is in terms of the morality, in terms of the values that we have, uh, let's save the earth, um, coming from the top, but at the same time, having this uh, counter pressure, I guess, this, this counter force from the bottom where the students are saying, hey, you know, we want to work on this. This is really important to us. So that the action does become meaningful and authentic and not just something you have to do. I'll give you an example. My son did Plastic Oceans three years in a row. And unfortunately, I think he's pretty disgusted with the concept and doesn't really care about Plastic Oceans because he's done it over and over and over again. And it is to the point where the curriculum has to not just be something that we cover, but has to develop a little bit more meaning, a little bit more heart, a little bit more purpose, uh, and, and eventually uh, be a situation where either it's co-designed or it is coming from the students and then and then the, the adults or the, the more experienced um, uh, educators, learners uh, come in and uh, uh, work with the students as a group, as a collective. But, but where do you see that? And specifically, perhaps with uh, high school and uh, middle schoolers? Well, first of all, my youngest child is still in high school. So she also feels she's in a gymnasium and there they uh, seem to learn a lot of things about sustainability. And she says that nobody wants to hear about it precisely because it's a curriculum. It comes top down. We have written um, a series of articles, by the way, I'm not sure whether you're aware of them about children, um, comparing Dutch case studies with Canadian ones. The name of the author, the first author is Sitka Sage. Actually, his real name is uh, Derby, but uh, he's married to a uh, Native American. So a uh, number of Canadians uh, who have done case studies in Canada about nature education, I will send you the links afterwards. And it's about, um, yeah, learning the wrong things sometimes. So what children learn sometimes too, and in the case of the Netherlands, I won't speak about Canada because it was their case study, uh, but they have, for example, this forest week. And in the Netherlands, we have very little forest left and we have practically no old growth. It's all planted forest and uh, it's very much, uh, it's, it's very small and it's disconnected. And there they learn all these wonderful things about how to make a fire, how to chop wood, how to play games in the woods. If you think about it, what they're doing is that indeed they're chopping wood. They have a very instrumental relationship to the forest. The same for they have, uh, they call it garden, um, uh, school gardens. For a few months, they're growing vegetables and this way they are learning about how vegetables and flowers grow, etc. 
At the end, you can imagine these vegetables are taken home. So all parents are very happy um, and flowers are taken home. But basically the things are consumed, cut. And what children are not necessarily told is that afterwards there are fertilizers put in the ground because the ground is just bare. Basically, this is supposed to be a part of nature education or environmental education. And I think at that point, they're learning a lot of anthropocentric skills, how to use nature for own consumption, because what is given back to nature? Hayden Washington, of course, talks about, among other things, about eco-reciprocity. What do we give back? Well, nothing, nothing at all. And that's what's being learned. And also the kind of wilderness that they talk about in the Dutch forest, it's ridiculous because there are highways just behind it. I mean, you can see all the buildings and industrial agriculture fields. And I think one of the things that children um, can learn, and that was one of the outcomes of um, our investigation, is to look at things very differently from the very beginning. And indeed, things can be fun. And the teacher should definitely not tell children what to do. I mean, in this case, look, environmental education happens outside the classroom, so that's fun. They are having fun, must be admitted. They're not rebelling against it because, well, they can roam around and, uh, you know, chop wood. But the thing is that, too, you know, we really have to think about the content. What are, are they learning? How they are learning? So we can continue to make it fun. But indeed, one of the fundamental questions to ask is what comes out of it? What kind of knowledge do we derive from it? Nature gives us food. Nature gives us firewood. You know, that's very different from look and don't. This is an endangered flower. It's a wild one. You can call it a weed. But what they also learn in those school gardens, in that example, is that they take out weeds. That in itself, some of those weeds are actually wildflowers that are at the moment critically endangered in the Netherlands. Why? Because it's all intensive agriculture that tolerates none of it, and it's urban development. And we have 17 million people living in a very, very small territory. So from the very beginning, if we were to teach children, for example, uh, these are not weeds, and actually you're not going to cut them and you're not going to eat them, but these are beautiful, wild things. So that might be already something very different indeed from a kind of consumptive way of doing things. Okay, climbing on trees might not be very safe and might not be very good for the branches, but again, it might be a bit different from chopping them and uh, burning them. I mean, I myself grew up in Russia and I spent a lot of years with my parents hiking in areas like Karelia, or areas close to Siberia, love sitting around the fire, love doing all this stuff and consuming things that we found in nature, such as mushrooms and berries, etc. If you see how many individuals, human individuals, live per square meter in the Russian Federation, and how many individuals live per square meter in the Netherlands, uh, that's the difference. Basically, there aren't enough berries or mushrooms or whatever here for school children to, you know, 
just used for subsistence. It's all, it's very different. So thinking about cultural contexts in which uh, these things are taught, so comparing again, con Canadian case study looks at more wild places, but there again, there were issues having to do very much with anthropocentric way of, uh, you know, seeing the same forest, Canadian forest. Yeah, that has to be considered, I think, when we work with children. So what's the solution in areas that are so densely populated like Northwestern Europe? How, how do we get kids into that space, into nature, outside, when the environment, unfortunately, doesn't allow for that? What, where do we take it from there? Yeah, like Richard Love wrote in his book, The uh, Nature Deficit Disorder in Children. You know, there is an irony to it, too, because um, what we also see is you'd imagine hypothetically, if this was true, people that grow up in the cities would not care about environments and people who grow up in the forest or next to the forest would. That's not empirically true. There are individuals living next to the forest, see it being cut and participate in it because it gives money. We see it in developing countries now because there's not much to cut in Western Europe anymore. It has all been turned into forest plantations. Um, and you also see one of the films that I let my students watch is called If a Tree Falls, a story of the Earth Liberation Front, a radical group in the United States, number one terrorist threat. Um, yeah, and there you see an interview with Daniel McGowan, a member of this terrorist organization that says, well, I grew up in New York, you know, I've never been out in the forest. Once he watched the film about, um, well, tropical or I don't know, temporal zone forest being cut. And he said it touched me so much and that started the whole journey. Personally, I have also written a thing called the Lorex Complex about biophilia many years ago, cross-culturally. It seems that there are individual variants. And by the way, here's an opportunity through education too, these things can be brought up. We have done interesting measurements like zero measurement, asking students before the course, asking the same question after the course, what changes. We've seen it with other things like racism, for example. So it's not necessarily innate, but it's also learned that certain things you can learn that this is not good to discriminate um, against other people. You know, and in the same way, you can learn other things like it's not okay to treat environment in this kind of way. So these are very direct opportunities. One is through education and another one is in the real world. Again, going back to your question about action. Uh, one of the big actions, and that's not for students and it's not for me, but for um, larger developing organizations, uh, provide things like sex education, free contraception, where it's needed the most, where women's rights, human rights, reproductive rights are basically violated, where unwanted pregnancies, child marriages, basically where there's no talk about voluntary, you know, wanting to. And these are particularly the areas where most childbirths happen and they're unwanted, for example. That's one area. Another one is, of course, drastic cut in production and consumption and change in production and consumption in rich countries through degrowth, very important. That's what Hayden Washington, of course, also very much talks about. 
steady state economy, um, circular economy, especially if it's not um, greenwashed, because there's a lot of talk about green economy or circular economy be, being the new engine of growth. So using it as a kind of buzzing term, while in terms of material consumption of food, for example, or clothes or housing, it's very difficult to make material things circular. You know, if you eat something, it comes out in the toilet. So if you don't talk about what comes, comes out in the toilet, well, that's not circular. <laughs> it goes one way and something else comes out. It has to do with thermodynamics. But degrowth, steady state economy, and indeed certain things within a circular economy, technological cycles, can be very far reaching and have been, have, has been shown. So these are the big solutions, address population growth in completely non-coercive, voluntary, win-win human rights and um, population way. Uh, because with 8 billion, 9 billion, 11 billion, whatever, I don't see any sustainable future at all. It compounds all other problems and address production and consumption on the largest possible level. So yeah, these are the solutions based they're not easy, but they're necessary. I really appreciate the connections that you're making here about anthropocentrism. It's not just about the environment. It's not just about animals. It's not just about plants, although clearly those are very important. But it's about everything that comes out of that as well. When you have this humanist attitude, this me first, this uh, the individual is the most important. We need to um, honor the individual, nurture the individual, and so forth. There's uh, room, unfortunately, for selfishness there because there's room of saying, hey, you know, my needs come first and, and, and uh, everyone else can, uh, can come second, which unfortunately opens up areas of misogyny, racism, socioeconomic injustice, uh, even treating each other poorly or, or feeling hurt or offended when somebody does something um, and, uh, and, and we feel that we've been betrayed or, or, or offended by that and thinking about me first without necessarily looking into um, the motivations that, that may be malicious but, but maybe aren't from the other person, but the miscommunication that happens when we're focused only on the self. So these are tremendously important. I'm glad that you brought this up because anthropocentrism isn't just that as a human species. It's also egocentrism. And, and, and I'm sorry to go off here. I, I, I will say thank you. Um, I know you have to run... And um, I, I'm going to leave it open to you, maybe uh, if there's anything on your mind, things that you're thinking about, things that you're doing. Um, it's a little bit the et cetera section, but I really wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to, uh, to give any final thoughts. Well, there are a lot of things I'm working on, and I would love to work on them also together these days. I appreciate the fact that indeed not just my work is being read, but I also connect to authors whose work I read and whose research I'm interested in. And increasingly, what is wonderful is working in teams of researchers and authors. So I also invite you personally to be part of it, of course. And there are four or five streams that I'm interested in. One of them, perhaps the central one, is called environmental education. Another one is called biodiversity, um, whatever you connect to it, conservation, biodiversity, loss, biodiversity, whatever. Um, and the third one is called sustainability, and they're all interrelated, at least in my view. And what I do professionally is business, corporate, sustainability. So from that point of view. And the fourth thing is ethics.
So having to do with deep ecology, indeed, land, and how you apply all these things to various disciplines, such as my own anthropology. Because increasingly, I feel that there's a need for all of us to address our own disciplines and see what, what I do see is that there's a lot of anthropocentrism in academia as well. And the way we talk about SDGs, sustainable development goals, for example, sustainable development, again, it's about uh, how climate change affects our economy or social systems. We're very focused on um, ethics of inter intra species um, and not so much inter, I mean, within the species differences. So we talk about diversity, we talk about black and white, and we don't realize that we discriminate in the most horrendous way against every single other species on earth. Right now we are celebrating introduction of the vaccine, but of course there were millions if not billions of mice and rats and monkeys and whatever was experimented on in order to get there and we see it as a common good we don't even question that you know we it's there are so many examples in which we can say yeah there's a bit more ethical relation to animals or nature but in in a nutshell not really so these are the kind of issues that i work on and i very much invite whoever is interested you know to connect to that and I think what you see also increasingly in the last few years, I've been publishing with a number of individuals from different disciplines. So we learn from each other. And actually a lot of my co-authors these days are my students as well. So that's kind of uh, also interesting to see a shift towards doing things together. And uh, yeah, for that matter, indeed, if you want to join any of those teams and any of those subjects, you're very much welcome to. I would be very, very honored. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, how do people get a hold of you? Email. And I think, you know, my presence on the internet is, uh, it's difficult not to find me, if I may say so. I hope it doesn't sound arrogant, but uh, it's pretty easy. And I also, I think my email is out there, so that's very easy. Thank you so much, Helen. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Very nice talking to you. This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Kokoro Thinking. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. We're not done with our series of thinkers, researchers, and activists uh, in the age of the Anthropocene. Our next guest will be Peter Sutoris, uh, who wrote a fantastic article on the economy of uh, ecocentrism and specifically what could be done uh, in order to Move it forward, uh, our way of life, uh, go beyond humanism, uh, think about how we need to redefine uh, our actions, our purpose uh, to come together as one of the many members and life forms uh, on the planet. Been looking forward to that. And uh, again, if you have any questions, uh, any comments, anything that you'd like to contribute or tell us that you're just angry at what we're doing, www.coconut-thinking.design. Uh, we look forward to all and every comment and every connection that we have. We'll Zoom with anyone. We look forward to our next episode and hope you can join us. Speak to you soon.